You're listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews with experts from around the world on the latest and most interesting issues of human rights and international humanitarian law. My name is Maria Yartseva, and we are broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute in Lund, Sweden. Today, we are speaking to Janet Lord, an affiliated senior fellow at Harvard Law School Project on Disability. Janet Lord is a health and international human rights lawyer, specializing in many areas, including disability law and policy, and health rights for marginalized populations. Today we are going to discuss the protection of persons with disabilities in armed conflicts. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. So you have been here at the Raoul Wallenberg Institute for the NATO Conference on Disability Rights Under Armed Conflicts. So what was the purpose of this conference as a co-organizer? What do you think was the biggest outtake and are you happy with the results of this conference? Oh, well, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I think what we were uh, looking at achieving in the context of this conference was really bringing together, for the first time, a diverse set of stakeholders, um, all of whom have a stake in thinking about and advancing uh, disability inclusion in the context of international humanitarian law. Um, and it's, a, it's really a new dialogue and a new conversation that arises out of the inclusion of a particular article, Article 11, um, in the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So the convention was adopted back in 2006. So this conversation, in fact, has been a long time in coming. Um, and I think there's reasons why it's been somewhat delayed. So this really was an opportunity to bring different stakeholders from the International Committee of the Red Cross, from disabled people's organizations, um, researchers, uh, disability rights activists, together to talk about how we can advance implementation of Article 11, particularly in the context of armed conflict and humanitarian uh, law. According to the Geneva Academy, an estimate of 15% of the world's population, which is approximately 1 billion people, have some form of disability, and a large percentage of those people will be somehow involved in an, or affected by an armed conflict. So can you explain a little bit more how people with disabilities are impacted by armed conflicts? Why is this an important topic to discuss in such a setting? Sure. So we know that armed conflict is both a cause of disability and a complicating factor for persons living with disability. Violations of human rights and humanitarian law result in trauma and impairment that lead to disability. Uh, and we know, too, from the emerging research in this area that persons with disabilities who are living in or fleeing from conflict zones face numerous threats to their physical and mental health and well-being. And this is an aggravating factor for those who have pre-existing disability um, and can lead certainly to secondary disability. And armed conflict and the violence it produces creates you know, a range of risks, clearly, whether from attacks that are directed at individuals or the presence of landmines and other unexploded ordnance, exposure to the elements for civilians or combatants who have little protection from the elements, and risks of other trauma can also create or exacerbate psychosocial conditions. So there's a wide range of, of potential impacts. And we know, too, that the exposure of persons with disabilities to discrimination in peacetime, right, in general culture and society, 
is only made worse during the context of armed conflict. And more often than not, people with disabilities have multidimensional disadvantage in conflict on account of disability, but in combination with other vulnerable status. So gender, poverty, ethnicity, and so on. So the barriers that people with disabilities experience routinely in peacetime, accessing education or accessing medical care, health care, um, supports that they may need, adequate standard of living, all of these problems and barriers that are present and pervasive during peacetime are, of course, intensified in times of conflict. So there's just a, a range of things that we're starting to see from the emerging evidence that's been conducted by organizations like Human Rights Watch, to a certain extent some humanitarian organizations. We know that this risk uh, is real and pervasive and really needs to be addressed. Yes, so the Article 11 of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities demand specific attention to be paid to the protections of persons with disabilities during armed conflicts. So what does this mean for policymakers and people in the field and also people with disabilities? Sure. So I, I'll go back to really the genesis of this particular provision in the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And when we were drafting the convention at the UN, there were a, a, a group of us who had participated in the international campaign to ban landmines and in the process that resulted in the mine ban treaty. So we were uh, already addressing the rights of landmine survivors and trying to bring their voice into the movement for uh, an anti-personnel landmine uh, convention, and we wanted survivor assistance reflected in that convention. It was controversial at the time. Some of the civil society groups who were really pressing for the weapons ban, which obviously was extremely important, nonetheless did not want to see their message, their advocacy message, diluted by the introduction of provision on victim assistance. They were worried that this might um, actually compromise uh, the, the treaty. But the voice of landmine survivors was, was quite uh, clear uh, on this matter, and, and in the end, uh, we did get a provision in that treaty. It's not a very strong provision, but it does address the need for socioeconomic reintegration of landmine survivors. And so really it was from that and looking at uh, the very beginning of the treaty process how the con Convention on the Rights of the Child addresses the protection of children in the context of, of, of armed conflict, uh, protection issues, that we saw a sort of jumping off point uh, in terms of integrating and uh, reflecting the need to protect persons with disabilities, not only in peacetime, but also in times of, of armed conflict. So we started pressing for language, uh, not unlike the language we see in the Convention on the Rights of the Child, that would essentially create a fusion between human rights and international humanitarian law in the context of disability, and relating not only to armed conflict and other types of emergencies, but also natural disaster. And so we pushed very hard for that, and there was reasonable receptivity to that. But we, I think, uh, in the end, won the day. The point at which, during the negotiations, there were some very serious natural disasters where persons with disabilities were put at extreme risk and, in some instances, died because of poor planning, poor preparation, the total absence of disaster risk reduction insofar as it 
um, address the specific needs of, of uh, persons with disabilities. Um, so that was Hurricanes Rita and Katrina, and then later the Asian tsunami. So that really put to the forefront this issue of protection in, of course, natural disaster, but, but also expanding uh, to armed conflict. And so what that has meant for policymakers and, and people in the field is, uh, number one, harnessing that particular provision and uh, sensitizing disaster risk reduction responders and planners about that. So policymakers in emergency response. Um, we've had quite a lot of traction on that, both domestically as well as internationally in the sort of disability inclusion in the context of international policy instruments that speak to the issue of inclusive disaster response, such as the Sendai framework, for example. Um, so we've gotten some good traction there and references to disability inclusion in other inter international instruments. And then finally, we come into this issue that's still neglected, still not well understood, and that is what is the nexus between human rights and international humanitarian law in this context of disability. So that's kind of where we are now. We are at a point at which I think we can have the conversation. Policymakers are more sensitized about disability inclusion in the broad context of emergencies, natural disaster, and so on. And although IHL tends to be a rather esoteric field for many, I think um, we have the sort of research capabilities and now with uh, some other developments internationally, I think we can really start that conversation and start to sensitize uh, various stakeholders about that nexus and what it means really in practical terms. In June 2019, the resolution 2475, which is the first of its kind that calls upon member states and parties in armed conflicts to protect persons with disabilities in conflict situation, has this resolution helped in any way to change this discourse and this problem that you just mentioned? That is a really great question. So the resolution, resolution 2475, which was really about four years in coming and a really uh, rather remarkable development given where we were back in uh, 2001, really, when this whole treaty process was launched. And it was really to the work of a, a, some fabulous folks in the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, in UNICEF, uh, and in civil society working together to really make that happen. So it's just been adopted. Um, I think we've yet to see what kind of traction it will get. I think it will advance the conversation because when we have a Security Council resolution on a particular issue, states do take notice. And that can be a conversation opener, creating space for a dialogue. So I think we're right at the beginning. I don't think we've changed the discourse yet. And I think the challenges ahead is to um, really start the sort of framing of the debate about disability inclusion in the context of international peace and security. Our biggest, uh, probably our biggest challenge will be to reframe within the context of international humanitarian law the understanding of disability, right? So if we look at the texts that we have in the Geneva Conventions and, and certainly in older texts on the Hague uh, side of things, or different um, instruments that are addressing means and methods of warfare, we see that persons with disabilities are, are certainly referenced, but they're captured in language which certainly does not 
reflect an empowered person with a disability. So we see terms that are really reflecting old traditional medical model notions of disability. So wounded and sick and infirm, disabled, mutilated, those kinds of terms um, that are certainly problematic, but also at the same time indicate that persons with disabilities, along with some other specific groups, are recognized under international humanitarian law as in need of specific protection. Um, So that's, we need to sort of look at that, reframe things uh, in a more progressive way so that we don't, through the application of international humanitarian law, actually reinforce the very things that we want to we want to make sure don't happen, such as, um, you know, rebuilding of institutions in an immediate post-conflict context, or, for example, quarantine of persons with mental disabilities. There's language in the Geneva Conventions around that. Those are things that are regressive and certainly not in alignment with the CRPD. So we need to understand the framing of disability within IHL, how that needs to be refreshed and in line with the principles of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and then how that framework together can be harnessed to actually provide specific protection to persons with disabilities and to guide militaries um, and to guide armed non-state actor groups and, of course, to inform the work of uh, responders and humanitarian assistance providers. I think the voice of the people with disabilities is also important to include in this discourse, but how should you go about doing that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And what we know is that you cannot implement any of the articles in the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities absent the voice, the participation in lawmaking, policymaking, programmatic design, and so on. So, um, and that's reflected throughout the entire treaty. The importance of first understanding how to find persons with disabilities and their representative organizations. And quite frankly, that's often the first question we hear from humanitarian assistance organizations or from development organizations. We don't know how to find people with disabilities. Well, yes, often they're uh, because of uh, cultural and, and social norms, they may very well be hidden in their own communities, hidden in their own homes. But we do know how to find persons with disabilities. We do know how to find organizations who represent persons with disabilities. So that is really the first step. And the second step, I think, is to facilitate the voice of persons with disabilities and their organizations in these key stakeholder engagement and community engagement types of arrangements that certainly do take place in the context of humanitarian relief operations, for example, just like in the context of international development. So community engagement is not typically inclusive of persons with disabilities. That's a problem that can be you know, readily changed with some pretty basic guidance to organizations about how you identify and reach out to and make your meetings inclusive of people with disabilities. So, so local organizations know exactly where to meet, what is the accessible meeting. It could be a rehabilitation community center, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so lots of things are not a real big deal, but very often organizations who do not have 
persons with disabilities in their employee um, or linkages to the disability community really won't know how quite how to do that outreach in order to harness the expertise that's within those organizations. Yeah, so I guess it's a, it's an issue to kind of tie together the policy level and a local level and tie the gap between idea and practice. And it's, I guess, always hard to find a good balance in how to do that. You know, it is really challenging. Um, and it, often what we find in implementing, you know, any of the provisions of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities is that there's, there is often a bit of a gap between that sort of national level policy making and dialogue that can happen, and that usually is happening between disabled people's organizations and you know government level stakeholders in a national capital. That may not be happening, however, between disability organizations or persons with disabilities at the very local community level outside a capital. So very often there is that kind of gap. There's things happening. There is definitely traction happening with regard to law and policy change at that national level, but translating that into action at the local level can definitely be challenging. And, and very often organizations of persons with disabilities in a, in a capital don't have that reach outward. They don't have the resources really. So you find sort of diminished capacity among these disability organizations um, outside. But you know, there are development workers, development organizations, humanitarian organizations, you know, working in these sometimes extremely complex environments, and it's really incumbent on them to do that outreach and make sure in their work with civil society they are including persons with disabilities. So there is a gap, um, and that's a huge challenge, but I think there's also opportunity to, in including organizations of people with disabilities in these processes to help build up their capacity so that they really are great resources, whether doing peer support, whether um, doing referrals and linkage to rehabilitation or, or inclusive education or what have you. But it's, it's actually getting organizations to understand that they should be and have a responsibility to be harnessing that expertise. So it seems like you've had a great experience from working with both agencies, such as the UN Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights, European Union, uh, but you've also been working in the field for over, in over tw 30 countries. Where did your interest for uh, disability rights and in armed conflicts come from? Or how come you chose this path? Oh, that's, thank you for that question. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, my, my academic background comes out of uh, international public law uh, and then studying human rights. Uh, and uh, I had the opportunity to work for two Holocaust survivors who were fabulous uh, international human rights lawyers, uh, Tom Bergenthal and uh, Louis Sohn. Although I thought I was going to be an environmental lawyer, I, I emerged from a program at GW Law School uh, after working with these two am amazing guys and uh, ended up in the human rights realm, which was fantastic. And I <clears throat> had done a study on landmines and the both human rights impact and environmental pack and, and development impact of landmines. And um, that really captivated me. So I did become involved with the international campaign to ban landmines and then took a job as an advocacy director with a landmine survivor organization in Washington. And my role at that point was to 
monitor implementation of the Mayan Ban Treaty, but particularly focused on the access of landmine survivors to health and rehabilitation and, and uh, political participation uh, and education. And um, that's what I was focused on when, lo and behold, the government of Mexico initiated a treaty process, much to our surprise, in 2001, having a, a UN uh, General Assembly resolution uh, put forward and ultimately adopted that led to the creation of an ad hoc committee uh, that was established, uh, and then we were off and running with the negotiation of this treaty. So that's kind of the genesis of my coming into this, you know, fascinating field. And in terms of the changes that I've seen uh, during the time that I've been working in, in this field, I guess towards the end of the 1990s, um, it, it's incredible. I'm no longer the weird person in the room talking about some esoteric topic uh, and having people kind of scratching their heads. And I'm no longer on a panel with people talking about disability rights issues and the size of the panel is bigger than the audience. That doesn't happen anymore, and it's remarkable. Um, and this treaty, as we had a feeling it would do, really put disability rights on the radar screen for law schools, for human rights organizations, for disability rights organizations who, you know, also have gained an international perspective through the, the vehicle of this treaty, uh, along with international development agencies, and now we're hoping humanitarian agencies um, and, and ultimately militaries who are responsible for the implementation of international humanitarian law through the lens of, of, of disability inclusion as well. So when we first started out, there was very little understanding of disability rights. How on earth did that fit in to the human rights realm? Donors would say, well, we fund human rights, but we don't fund disability rights as though they're separate things. Uh, so it was a highly marginal issue within human rights. It was a highly marginal issue within development, international development, uh, and likewise, you know, virtually invisible within the realm of humanitarian action. So we have come a long way and we have a lot of work to do, but the mere fact of getting this issue on the international agenda has then led to a cascade of domestic law and policy reform and a real surge in the advocacy of disa disabled people's organizations to affect change in their in their communities. So long way to go, but wow, there's been a real sea change as a result of this treaty. It must be quite rewarding to be a part of this change and also to see this type of change. Yeah, you know, it's it's been amazing. And, um, and my mentor, Louis Sohn, uh, said a couple of things that, that resonated with me. One thing he said is, you know, it's good to be a giraffe in the sense of having your head in the clouds, but your feet firmly on the ground when you're working on a human rights issue. And I think that's true. Um, and another thing he said was that, you know, if you're going to be in human rights work, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And man, you have to have the long view. And I think that's uh, absolutely germane as well. And, I, and I'm an optimistic person. I get that from my mother. 
And so uh, I think I've been able to usually maintain that long view and understanding that this is a process, that change will happen, and that through the vehicle of this treaty, which is so much more than its text, um, we can actually see real change and measure it. So what is the biggest challenge forward for you and for disability rights? You know, I think there are a number of challenges that we face currently. One of them, which, which uh, is presented to civil society around the world, is the restrictive environment that so many civil society organizations now face. And that's particularly damaging to the disability rights community that still remains marginal and marginalized within civil society in, in most countries around the world. So that restrictive environment and the limitations that have been set on non-governmental organizations uh, because of restrictive NGO registration laws and the rise of authoritarian regimes is extremely worrying and concerning to me. Um, so that's, that's one thing that's certainly on the radar. Um, and, you know, the challenges of climate change, right, the complexity of humanitarian um, crises, um, all of those things are placing incredible pressures on persons with disabilities and their representative organizations. And in many instances, the disability rights agenda, uh, we need to fight to, to keep it front and center. And we see that certainly in the United States where there are a number of obstacles that the disability rights community faces in just kind of holding the line on the uh, legislation and the rights protection that we do. That was Janet Lord, Affiliated Senior Fellow at Harvard Law School Project on Disability and her take on the protection of people with disabilities in armed conflicts. This has been On Human Rights. For more information and the latest updates on Raoul Wallenberg Institute's work, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you for listening.